You're going to flip in your Bibles uh, to the book of Zechariah. Continue in our journey through this uh, through this book. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, God, help us, we pray. Settle our spirits before you to receive what you would have for us. Give us your ears, we pray, Jesus. Give us your ears, we pray. Ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at this uh, idea of Jesus Christ being the kingly shepherd. Every book, as we have mentioned numerous times, is a book about Christ, even the Old Testament uh, books are are books about the Lord. Kenneth uh, Barker talking about the the kingly offices. We are noticing that Christ in our in our passage is this is this king, and he says this. He says the messianic king in David's line will be a wise ruler, that is, he is a, a wise counselor. A strong ruler or divine warrior, that is, he is mighty God. He's a fatherly ruler. He's a fatherly king. He's the, he's the everlasting father. And a peace, bringing peace, this kind of ruler. Prince of peace. Prince of peace. He are, these are his throne names. He goes on to say, of course, this is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We have noticed that the Lord brings salvation through a number of different ways. He brings salvation through prevention. There are times in our lives, and we saw in Zechariah, there are times when God saves us through preventing something from happening to us. He intervenes. Sometimes we're aware of what is going on. Sometimes we're not aware of it. Recently, somebody told me of a close uh, encounter of, uh, of a car wreck where they were very close to getting into a bad accident. And we were talking about the angels of the Lord. Sometimes he prevents, he prevents things in our life. And, of course, it's not just uh, physical uh, protection, but he also brings protection, from, he brings protection from the wicked one, from the enemy. We have authority over Satan, not because of, uh, because of our own authority, but because of the authority of Christ. The believer actually has the authority to say no to the no to the enemy. And we don't get into long dialogues with Satan. That's always a very bad idea. Jesus never got into long-winded conversations when he was uh, casting out devils, demons. But we do have the authority to say, out in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we don't say it in our own name, but we say it. We say it in the name of of Christ. We have authority over him, and there are times where he prevents the enemy from doing things to us that the enemy would love to do. Recently, I was at a at a conference where a man was on an airplane, and he was seated there, and he was. Um, he was uh, going from place to place and enjoying his flight. And as they served the meal, and throughout the flight, a seat over from him, there was, I guess, the middle seat was not taken. And the seat over, there was a gentleman who was in prayer. 
And the entire flight, he was he was praying. And uh, as they serve as they serve the meal, this this gentleman noticed that this man who had been praying did not take any food. He didn't take the meal. And so he thought, well, he's he's fasting. And so as they as they landed, he um, he looked over at this gentleman and he said, you know, I've noticed uh, the entire flight that you were you were praying. I noticed too that you didn't take the meal. You must have been you must have been fasting. He says a, a fellow Christian, and the man says, oh no no no, I'm not a Christian. He said I'm a Satanist. And he said, we've been commissioned, we have been praying and fasting recently for the destruction of spiritual leaders in our area, the destruction of their marriages. That's what he said. Wow. Of course, sent chills through him. But we have, we have power, we have uh, power over, over the wicked one. And so when we when we when we talk to him, it is quick and it is oftentimes uh, identification. We're identifying something and then we're then we're casting it out. So there is the salvation of prevention. Then we said there's the salvation of provision. That is, the Lord has provided for our salvation through provision. He has. He has provided through the provision of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial lamb given for the sins of the world. He's our Savior. And even when we didn't see what he was doing, understand what he was doing, even when we despised him, he loved us. And he laid his life down willingly, voluntarily down. He says, no man takes my life from me. But I willingly lay it down. This is, this is the glory of Christ in the book of John. It's the glory of his suffering. The fact that he would lay his life down willingly. This is, this is glory. This is beauty. Who has such strength when he could when he could smite his enemies, when he could do payback, when he could wreak vengeance and simply call a host of angels to his side, he would willingly be laid down on a cross. No man takes my life from me. He would willingly lay his life down on the cross. Greater love has no man than this and one who would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. True love. That's, that's true love. And it's, it's the love, and it's the salvation of love through, the salvation of love through provision. But then he also saves us through protection and through his mighty hand, through power. He saves us from our enemies through his power. And this is where we left off last week, that when he comes, he came the first time as this gentle lamb. When he comes the second time, when he comes in his glory, there's going to be a massive, massive war. And he doesn't come as the 
mild lamb, but he comes as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ, the scripture tells us, is coming back as a divine warrior. And by the way, if uh, his second coming is really not real to us, if his second coming, that is Christ's coming again, we don't really think it's actually true. If we're not actually anticipating the fact that he could come at any time, we don't actually believe that. You don't believe that this world is going to really take on a new phase and uh, go into a, another era when Christ comes back. If you don't really believe that, and you believe all of that is faux, or that is fake, or that is not real, then neither is your salvation. Listen, you cannot believe in a Christ who saves you from sin and not believe in his second coming. You cannot say, Christ, you're my Savior from sin. You're the provision of the sins of the world. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And then go, oh, but all of that stuff about Jesus coming back and him actually coming from heaven and destroying his enemies and uh, wreaking havoc on those who oppose him, all that stuff. Well, I don't know. That sounds more like the stuff of, of science fiction. We are living in a land full of mockers. We're living in a land full of scoffers. Bill Maher says, you really believe in a man from outer space coming down to save the planet? I don't believe in such stupid things, he says, and he mocks and he scoffs. He's now in his early 60s. And he's wasting his life. If he lives like 91 till 91, like Hugh Hefner did, he'll waste his whole life until he dies. And people often say, well, when that person hits rock bottom, oh, when they hit rock bottom, they'll turn. When they understand the depths of their, of their sin, they'll finally turn when when they're to the end of their rope, they'll, they'll finally turn to God. Really? Really? You know how many people reach the end of their rope and don't turn to God? To die with a defiant fist in the face of God. There's many people. Millions of people die like that all the time. Oh, oh does, uh, does the Lord use suffering in our life to bring us? Is the best place to meet him when we're at the end of our row? Oh, yeah, it's a great place. And many people find him there. When they're most broken and when they recognize that they're in their greatest need of him, they finally, they finally come to him. But that's not the case with everyone. And uh, there are people who live in sin their entire life and go from one tragedy to another tragedy and all the while blaming, blaming God for, for their situation, for the reason that they're in it. And that's what hell is full of. It's full of unbroken people who are not repentant at all. It's not, it's not full of people going, God, we're so sorry. We longed to know you. We were so wrong. Please have mercy on us. Oh, no, no, that's not what hell is full of. 
hell is full of people saying, how could God send me here? The suffering is immense and intense, but forever they'll be blaming everybody but their own, their own sin. So when Christ comes again, he comes with great power. And he comes with great authority. And so it's not just this, this coming of this ambassador with a few kind words. It's the coming of the Son of God with thunderous speech and with power and with, uh, with great glory. Look with me at Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Verse 5. Micah 5 verse 5. And he shall be their, their peace. He shall be their peace. What's this talking about? When Christ comes, he's coming and he's bringing peace. But in chapter 9, verse 10 of our text, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom. You have ten tribes in the north, two in the south. When Christ comes again, this verse in chapter 9, verse 10, is talking about his second coming. When he comes again, he'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And here it is, and he shall speak peace to the nation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when Christ comes back, he comes as this divine warrior, and he brings peace to the nations. But it's not peace through negotiations. Let's sit down and talk. Let's have a round table. Jesus doesn't show up at the UN and say, let's all work this out together. Let's, you have your say and you have your say, and let's, let's try to figure this out together. That's not what's happening. That's not what the text says. In other words, what, what the text is saying is peace is going to come through power. Peace is going to come through war. Peace is going to come through strength. How, how is Christ going to bring peace to the world when he comes again? It's going to be through a bloody battle. Then you're going to die when he comes. War. So when we, when we talk about him bringing peace, oh yes, he, he brings three, peace through prevention, and he brings peace through provision, but he also brings peace through power, through might, peace through strength. He's not going to tolerate his enemies for the rest of eternity where he just says, you can just continue to live in defiance and rebellion against me and my job is just to wrap my arms around you and just give you hug after hug after hug for all of eternity. That, that's not what this is. One negotiation after another where we sit down and we can argue with the Lord for all of eternity. No, no. In fact, when he comes, he must first squash sin He's coming back for a people who love him, a people who know him, a people who have first received his provision of sacrifice, his friends. He's coming back for his friends. But his enemies, his enemies are going to be greatly defeated. And so when we're talking about peace here, we like to think about this. Oh, the Lord's going to be, bring peace to the nations. He's going to bring peace to the nations. But it's peace through it's peace through strength. It's peace through the mighty roar 
of his eternal mouth. This is the power. This is the greatness of our God. He is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2. Flip with me there. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Says this. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he is our peace, but it's a peace that comes through might. It's a peace that comes through power. You say, well, wait a second, where do you exactly see this? We understand he's coming. Our text here in chapter 9, verse 10 says he's going to bring peace to the nations. But you're talking about this massive battle that's going to go on. You're talking about blood. You're talking about war. And Christ is going to come and bring peace as a mighty warrior. Flip with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 1. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden down the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. What is this talking about? Blood-spattered garments. Well, this is talking about the war that's going to take place peace through power, the war that is going to take place when he comes again. This is, this is what we are looking forward to, his, his coming, and it's going to be the coming as a mighty warrior. I love when Exodus says that the Lord our God is a man, listen, this is how it describes the Lord, the Lord our God is a man of war. He's a manly man. He's strong. And when he comes, he comes with might, and he comes with power, and he comes with strength. He's the one who fights our battles for us. This is why when we go to the Lord, we say this, Lord, you're not a wimpy God. You're not a wimpy God. You're not a God who's up there always going forever, please, 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 forever and ever. That's not you, God. You, you The scripture says you put down the proud, you Elevate the humble. Lord, if we're reading this text right, when you come, you're, you're a mighty man of war. You're going to defeat your enemies. God, would you, would you fight on, on the behalf of whatever it is you're praying for? We need a mighty man of war. The Lord, our God, is that mighty, he's that mighty warrior. 
John, in the book of Revelation, one of the five books that John writes, he refers to this text of Isaiah. If you flip over to John 19, John chapter 19, verses um, 13 through 15. John chapter 19, speaking about the Lord. John chapter 19, verse 13 says this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this is uh, before his this is before his coming. So this blood that it's talking about is his own blood, the blood that was given as a provision as a sacrifice for the world. So when he comes, this is symbolic of his blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the way, he'll forever have his scars to remind us of his great love and his provision, his salvation of provision for us. But it's a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. One of the names given to Christ is the Word. John also says this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Okay, so here he comes. He has a robe dipped in blood. But he's coming with the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now here's where it becomes clear that this is a, a peace that is given through a battle. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's battle talk. That's battle imagery. From his mouth, he cuts down the nations with his mouth, with the word of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth. And, of course, Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When he speaks, he's speaking with authority, speaking with power, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them. This is a literal fulfillment of the text we've been reading. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron, real nations on a real planet, that is, this planet. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So when he comes, and what Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 is talking about, when he comes, he brings peace to the nations, but it is a peace through war. Sometimes peace comes through prevention. Sometimes it comes through sacrificial provision. And sometimes it comes through power and strength. Wouldn't that be cool if our, our politicians understood this? We have so many different factions. The scripture is clear. It's not unclear in the scripture. Sometimes we have peace in our land through prevention what the scripture teaches us. We don't even, we don't even go there because we, we prevent something from happening. Sometimes it comes through provision, through the laying down of our lives. We say, well, for the betterment of you, I'm going to sacrifice. And sometimes peace comes through war and sometimes it comes through power and strength. And what we need as people who understand this, who can, who can discern that, 
And what we need are leaders who say, God, give us, give us insight into what you're saying here. Lord, would you lead our nation? Prayer meetings. Lord, are you, are you, are you telling us that we need prevention here? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the leaders in our nation praying over these things? Lord, are, are you telling us you just want us to prevent something? Don't even go there. Lord, where is it you're telling us that perhaps we need to lay down our own selfishness in our land and begin to sacrifice for others? Salvation through provision. Maybe it comes through saying, you know what? This is what I like, but you know what? I'm going to lay down my needs and I'm going to lay down my ones for the benefit of you. And sometimes it comes through power and strength. Romans tells us that the government was given the sword to wield. And that wasn't to tickle people. That's not what it was for. Sometimes it comes through war. And sometimes it comes through mighty strength. But it takes a discerning leader and discerning leaders to know when to use what tactic. And it's the same thing in our lives. Sometimes the Lord is just saying, you know what, just prevent this. You want peace? Prevent it. Sometimes he's saying, you know what, you need to relearn the lesson of sacrifice and you need to just lay your life down. You just lay your life down. And uh, Jesus is just saying, just follow me, lay, lay it down. And sometimes we say, Lord, we need power. We never, as a Christian, pick up the sword for the gospel's sake, ever. But we say, Lord, we need your power. Lord, you got boom, every power, might, strength into these prayers and into what we are asking you for. So this is this is the peace that the Lord gives, and this is the wisdom. This is. This is what happens when we begin to look at things through the eyes of Scripture. And we say, what we need is the wisdom of God. It's all there. But oftentimes what we're doing is we're living our lives and we're not mining out the precepts of Scripture. And God is saying, it's all right there if you'll just, if you'll just pay attention to what I'm saying. I've referenced this before, but this, this whole documentary series has just got my attention on the Vietnam War. And listening to these to these tapes of these of these presidents one after succession, and just thinking to myself, they they have they have the the life and death of boys in their hands and girls in their hands. You know how they need wisdom. You know how they need wisdom on how to handle every critic. What we need is prevention. What we need is power. How do you know? What we need is sacrifice and provision. We need to provide more. How do you know? Scripture gives all three here very clearly. How do you know which one? And this is why we say the Holy Spirit is still leading today. And if we will fall on our faces before God and we'll say, God, you can lead us. This is what he said over and over again to the nation of Israel. You went into battle, but you didn't seek me. You did this, but you didn't seek me. You turned to everybody else, but you didn't turn. You didn't turn to me. You didn't turn to me. I'm, I'm, your, I'm your friend. That's what God is saying. 
I'm, I'm there for you every second, turning, turning to the Lord, turning to him in prayer. And so we have all of these, we have all of these different ways of, of seeing peace come to us. Now, verses 11 through 17 of uh, Zechariah 9 are, there's a, a double fulfillment. That is, these verses talk about two things at the same uh, time. When Alexander the Great died, uh, his, his empire was split into three different sections. And one of the sections uh, was, was ruled by a, a, a particular a general, and um, it was named after him. And it was in this region that Israel was, um, was ruled and Israel was reigned, the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucids were in charge of Israel at this uh, particular uh, time after Alexander had died and his generals uh, received um, a threefold division of the empire. One of them were the Seleucids named after one of the generals. And eventually to the Seleucid throne came an evil dictator. In fact, he's... um, He's a type of the Antichrist. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, his name means, Epiphanes means God manifest. can tell you what he thought about himself. Thought about, he, he thought about himself so greatly that he was actually manifesting God. But he was a, he was a wicked man. He was in charge of Israel. Things got so bad in Israel that he actually had their temple desecrated. Remember, at this point in history, their temple was rebuilt. He had a pagan god set up uh, in the temple, and he actually sacrificed, he had pigs sacrificed on the altar in the temple and in the temple complex. Can you imagine? There is nothing more anathema. There is nothing worse then the Jewish person thinking to himself, not only is this temple going to be desecrated by Gentiles, but they were actually going to bring in something that was seen as vile and disgusting. That was a pig. And to have a pig that was actually sacrificed upon the altar within this temple. And some of the Jews had had enough. There was a country priest who stood up And he said um, when he uh, was commanded to sacrifice a swine, an unclean animal, to to a false god, he said, I'm not going to do it. And when the officer, the Gentile officer, saw that he wouldn't do it, he chose somebody else. He said, well, somebody else is going to do it. His priest's name was Mattathias. And Mattathias was so overcome with zeal that he killed the officer And then he killed the man who was going to be picked in order to sacrifice to this false deity. There was a a riot that ensued. There was an uprising. Mattathias would later die. But there were many Jews that stood up with him and said, we are going to fight for our land. We're going to fight for our temple. And we're not going to allow this to happen. We don't care how small we are. We can't, we can't take it anymore. We're going to fight. 
That's exactly what they did. In fact, he had um, he had five sons. Judah would become the most prominent son who would take up the battle against all of these um, all of these Gentiles, these Seleucids. His father, Mattathias, just to give you a, an understanding of his zeal, he said this: "Let everyone who is zealous for the law." This is what Mattathias said. He said, "Let everyone who is zealous for the law." and who stands by the covenant, follow me. said, enough's enough. The outrage has reached heaven. We're not going to take this. And so he fights back. And against overwhelming odds over a series of roughly 20 years or so battles, this little minority of Jewish people actually overcame, and they took back their land, and they took back their temple, in fact, in 164, uh, the temple was was purified. And for roughly 100 years or so after that, so you had from 164, 100 years, to about 63, 64, when Pompey comes to the throne, Israel is, is independent and is able to take care of itself. And as a result of this, Jews to this day still celebrate this unbelievable miracle, this intervention of God. When the Jews, against overwhelming odds, fought back against the Seleucids, who came from the Greeks, they were a Greek people, they fought back against them and actually won. Stunning. And to this day, they still celebrate. We see it during what is our Christmas season, and that is Hanukkah. And that is what Hanukkah is celebrating every year. It's called the Festival of Lights. And they are celebrating this time of 164 to about 64, but they're specifically celebrating the time when this minority of Jews would actually conquer their enemies in, in miraculous fashion. And so every year they, they remember back to this and they celebrate with the Lord. Uh, this is a, known as the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, you'll hear about Judah, Maccabees, Mattathias, Maccabees. Maccabean meaning the hammer. Of course, we understand that any person to this day who's a Jew, uh, if they do not know Christ, uh, they do not have salvation. This time, this was uh, still during the Old Testament and, of course, the intertestamental period of, of history. But Christ has come. The Savior of the world has come. But this was a, a mighty defeat given by the Lord. So when we read verses 11 through 17 of this text, it's talking specifically about this Maccabean revolt, which for Zechariah was still in the future. This is incredible. Here's Zechariah who has um, been given the word of God, and we see that every word, every verse that he has been given is fulfilled to the letter, is fulfilled to the word. And so you have these verses that would also be fulfilled specifically in the Maccabean revolt that would take place uh, in a matter of hundreds of years from the writing of this. So that's the one thing verses 11 through 17 are talking about. But there's also a clear indication that the verses are talking about something that goes beyond that. So it's talking on one hand about this revolt that is coming, coming given by God, but it's also talking about the millennium and the second coming of Christ and the battle that happens when he comes. This war that we talked about, this battle of Armageddon when Christ comes and wins victory through strength. So we need to keep that in mind. As we're reading these verses, 
on one hand, they're talking about this initial fulfillment, and they're also talking about a greater fulfillment because these verses are going beyond that. Look with me at verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 9. It says this, Zechariah 9, verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, what covenant is this? This is the covenant that was given to the, to the father of the Israeli people, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 15. So God is saying, because of this covenant with you, Israel, because of the blood of my covenant, by the way, very quickly, God made that covenant uh, with, with Abraham. He separated animals, cut them up into sections. Then he knocked Abraham out. And then God's spirit, the manifest presence of God, manifest through symbols, passed alone through these divided parts. And the message was, if anybody breaks this covenant, let it be done to them what has been done to the animals that are on either side. And, of course, God is saying, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. I'm going to fulfill it alone. So he says in verse 11 here, he says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Let me just stop there for just a moment. He's talking, the first wave has already come in in Zechariah's day. There's still exiles in the land far away. And he says this, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. You might be a prisoner, he's saying. You might be a prisoner in a foreign land. But you're a prisoner of hope. Return to your stronghold. That is, return to Israel. But we, we could say this, we return to our stronghold. And while we live in this life and we are tainted with sin, we still have hope. We still have hope. The Lord is coming. So he says this. Listen to those words again carefully. Return to your stronghold. Maybe there's somebody here today you need to return to your stronghold. You need to return to Christ. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double. Now here's where it gets very clear. He's talking here about Greece. Verse 13, for I have bent Judah as my bow. Here's God as a man of war, and he's saying this. He's, he's, he's liking, likening Judah to this bow and arrow. And here he is. He's, he's arching it back. I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? Ephraim represents the northern kingdom. So you have the northern and southern kingdom as my arrows. I, here it is. I will stir up your sons, O Zion. Against your sons, what? Oh, Greece. What's he talking about here? He's talking about this Maccabean revolt that's going to come here in the days ahead. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. By the way, there's scholars who say there's no way he could have written this ahead of time. This, this must be from somebody who came back later on and wrote this in the text. Because, again, this is so specific. How could he get... Greece in there. Well, we know for a fact that even in Zechariah's day, they understood and knew who the Greeks were. Very specific language here. So even hundreds of years ahead of time, he's writing here, I'm going to stir up your sons, O Israel, against the sons, not of Babylon, but of Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, 
and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So here we are. Imagine we're on our plane and we're taking off and it's very clear. Here the Lord is first of all talking about this coming battle against Greece. But then as we're reading the text, it becomes more and more clear. He's talking not just about Greece, but he's also the plane is taking off and he's talking more than just about Greece. He's talking about the second coming. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. So in that day, when there was a city and it had walls around it, there'd be people, they would take slingshots and they would whip stones. And those stones would go in like missiles. And they would drop on the people and if the people weren't protected, those stones could land with fatal or deadly force. So he's saying, in this battle, I'm going to tread down the sling stones that come in. Could it be possible? He's also speaking, which seems so clearly, about this battle when he comes again, that he's going to tread down missiles, those of his enemies. And they shall drink, verse 15, and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl. A bowl of what? A bowl of blood. Drenched like the corners of the altar, on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Great is the beauty of the Lord. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. So here, here's this Lord. Great in might. Great in beauty. Great in precision. He says, don't worry, Ephraim. I'm going to bend you back like a bow. Don't worry, Judah, you're going to be like my arrow. And you will rise up. And you will defeat your enemy. And it's going to be amazing. For the rest of history, you're going to celebrate. And that's what they do. Year after year after year, they celebrate. They celebrate. But we look at this text and we say, wait a second, this is not just talking about that. This is talking about, yes, it's there. And oh, how specific the word of God is. This is going way past that to a time when Christ comes again and doesn't just do war on the Seleucids, but in his personal appearance, in his personal coming, does war against his enemies, wreaks vengeance on his enemies with a word, a sword from his, a sword from his mouth. This is the power of the Lord. This is, this is the beauty of the Lord. And if there's anything we need as we, as we read this text, it's, number one, awe at the beauty of God and the precision of his scripture. But there's also here a call, a call for wisdom, that we would he heed the words of the scripture here and we would simply go back to the Lord and we would see his salvation in all these different phases and ask ourselves, God, what are you speaking to our hearts about this text? 
Lord, how are you opening my eyes to see things in a clear way, not through my own lens or through the lens of the media, through the lens of my friends or through the lens of whatever? Lord, how do I see things through through your eyes, through the lens of your, your word? And then we worship. Would you stand with me as we close? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. I thank you for the uh, the clarity of it. That when we read these texts and when we listen to them, these aren't just kind of words for us to just figure out some imaginative explanation for what is going on. But Lord, when we hear them and we understand what's going on, we are awed at your grace and your beauty. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see clear, that we might see wondrous things in your word. Give us the wisdom of Christ, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that he is our peace. He's our peace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.